0: Sidney Offutt, making it up as I go along. When I was in the fourth grade, I hadn't heard about Voltaire's advice to writers. Voltaire had said writers should write about what they know best. I was more concerned with simple stories, such as reasoning why I hadn't done my homework. I can still hear the voice of my fourth grade teacher. And where is your homework this morning, Sidney? Why do they always sound so grim, like witches? Uh, I don't know, I would reply. Uh, uh, I didn't do it. That story won me a small prize. I could stay after school. I graduated very quickly to more inventive tales. In response to that question, where is your homework? I replied, eventually, it's like this. I lost it. I think. That last, I think, the product of my superconsciousness and guilt was soon eradicated from my t- storytelling as I move forward into more adventurous and daring tales. Where is your homework this morning, Sidney? I lost it. Again, after many sessions after school, I was able to contemplate more ambitious narrative and I still recall the morning I launched my first full blast into the world of imaginative fiction. The teacher was looking over my left shoulder, as I recall. I was shuffling, under my arithmetic book, my spelling list, a series of blank plate pages. What have you there? Is that your homework, Sidney? N- no, ma'am. Where is your homework? You're you're not going to believe this, I began. And with no further apology, I launched my first full-scale narrative. I, I, was, I was on my way to school this morning with my spelling list underneath my arm. All, all the words spelled out just the way you said, Mrs. Donaldson, some of them written four and five times because I had made a mistake and wished to correct them. As I was making the turn at Park Avenue in Lakeview, I saw a little girl crossing in the middle of the street, Simultaneously, lunging from one of the buildings, there came a great dog, a combination, Great Dane and German police. I could tell immediately the dog was mad. There was foam and saliva pouring from the corners of his cheek. The other students in the room turned and looked at me. Had Sidney Alford gone mad? What new facet of his personality was he revealing this morning? The teacher looked with a combination of horror and disbelief. But I continued. At least I wasn't being kept after school. Well, I said, what was I to do? There was this innocent child walking across the block and a mad dog surely headed for her destruction. So what could I do? I, I just took the only weapon in my hand, my school books, and I thrust those milky white sheets of my spelling list into the jaw of the great beast, thus saving the child, but destroying my homework. For that exaggerated fantasy, I was rewarded with another longer session after school and the request that I bring a note from my mother explaining why I told such elaborate tales and didn't do my homework. Junior high school presented another challenge. By the ninth grade, we had moved into Latin lists, and I was having great difficulty declining my verbs. Intermediate algebra was a complete riddle to me. There seemed to be no area in which any small distinction was going to be achieved. But I had a dream. Already, I dreamt of hitting a home run in the schoolyard. There was a great fence back against the left field wall, and I aspired to put a ball over that fence. That's the way I hoped to get even for all my failures in school. And that's how I hoped to win some attention from the most beautiful girl in the world. Her name was Joanne Nottingham. Oh, I can just see her now tripping across the schoolyard, her long braids flapping against the perfect back. How to win a girl like Joanne Nottingham? Well, I aspired to hit the ball over the fence. That's how it was done in all the books and stories, and that was surely how it would be done at PS 79 in Baltimore. It had been a particularly grim week for me. We were almost ready for Caesar's Gallic Wars, and the terror of that campaign left me shuddering at night. Algebra had become so complicated, we were doing something like shifting double equations. That afternoon after school, twilight was coming. We were engaged in one of those long battles with a score up in some fantastic height. Was it 18 to 18 or 83 to 83? I don't remember the numbers, but I do remember standing at home plate waiting for the ball to approach. Beyond the fence were a series of Baltimore brownstones. Further down the block, the white steps for which the city was famed. The brownstone buildings always held a kind of ominous threat to those of us in our twelfth and thirteenth years. We wondered who lived in these mysterious buildings that always seemed to have drawn blinds, that seemed so well kept, but with a musty disposition. It was my ambition, upon clearing the fence with the ball, to see the pellet disappear along the yards behind those dark brown stones. I was standing at the plate, The sun was already beginning to disappear. Isn't it always in moments of great achievement when history is made? And the ball started toward me. I was standing just the way you're supposed to. All the lessons of the past seemed to gelling into this moment as the ball started from the pitcher's hand with the tying run on second, the winning run represented by yours truly at the plate the ball steaming towards me, seeming to grow from, could it be an orange becoming a grapefruit? Approaching, was it even a cantaloupe? And at last, crossing the plate, I could swear a full-grown watermelon. I brought the bat around, lusty and even, the old follow-through. There was the crack of the bat, and a sensation raced through me that must have been hiding since the day that Babe Ruth hit his 60th, or Greenberg and Fox reached 58. I saw the ball take off on a high, clean arc over the shortstop's head, over the left fielder's head. It cleared the fence with room to spare. What ecstasy. It was as if the whole heavens had opened up and the doors to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown simultaneously, as I trotted modestly my head jogging just the way George Puccinelli's did for the Baltimore Orioles, just modestly enough. Oh, it was a long hit, but I expected these things to happen. I awaited the praise of my peers. At first base, I got my first clue when Lewis Newman turned to me and said, what are you trying to prove? At second base, Bobby Goodman said, you did it now, Offy. Now how are we going to play with no ball? I was on my way to third when I was greeted by my own teammates. They didn't look as if I was a hero. They reflected they had been betrayed. Big deal, show off. Now who's gonna go get the ball? The answer to that came fast enough as they pushed me, shoved me, nudged me out of the yard and onto the avenue. You just go right into that house there and go get the ball. That's the yard I think it's in. Silence overcame me. I felt the grimmest frustration I'd ever felt. It seemed to me the world was ending as night came. There wasn't a ball in the world I ever wanted to see again or a bat I wished to hold. I couldn't even ask a reasonable question as they thrust me up the white steps and into the small house and rang the bell. I felt a great gasping in my throat, and then a lady appeared. I could have sworn she was the witch from Hansel and Gretel. Yes, Sonny, she said in one of those broken voices that tries to be warm but only makes you feel awful. She said, Yes, Sonny, are you lost? Uh, uh, ball, ball, I managed to mutter. I was incapable of forming a phrase, more or less a sentence. I know, she said, you've lost your ball. Well, that's just too bad. You come along with me. Was there a slight southern accent in that Maryland voice? Did I detect some long ago origin of the southern rebel? Could it be Virginia or our eastern shore? Just come along with me, sonny, she said, the voice moving now from that of a witch to a great plantation lady as she led me into her house. Fearfully, I took my first steps. There was that clean, sweet smell of cleaning lotions, creams, and powders. The air was so pure the table so scrubbed. On one mantel, I saw a cupid and an old clock ticking loudly. I could have sworn it was clicking just that way when Lord Baltimore had first arrived, and I was certain it would go on clicking into eternity. Tick, tick, tick went the clock. Come along, sonny, said the lady, her voice becoming more southern with her every gracious move. We moved across her living room into the kitchen the air was so clean and pure you could almost smell it and out then to a small small porch overlooking the yard did I call it a yard why it was it was really a garden there grew flowers and I think the lady even had a a small patch of vegetables growing on one side why there's your ball sonny she said over there Right by the black-eyed Susans, I declare. Across the yard, sure enough, was that worn, dark pellet that was supposed to now sit in a case at the Hall of Fame. My bid for fame and eternity. Sitting up there, had she said near the black-eyed Susans, I think you'd better go fetch, sonny, she said. Go fetch it. I moved down the steps, no creek there and started across the garden, stumbling awkwardly, crushing flowers and plants, feeling like a Frankenstein monster destroying everything. But I found the ball and picked it up and started back into the house. The sight of the ball was almost more than my heart could stand. Tears welled in my eyes and I felt a soft sobbing in my throat "'I know what your problem is, Sonny,' she said. "'You're just feeling a little bad, and you need a little refreshment. "'I think a refreshment will do. "'Here, Sonny, wouldn't you like a nice, sweet apple?' "'Candy was more to my taste. "'But with the apple in one hand and the ball in the other, "'incapable of saying thank you, "'I went back across the apartment with her, "'out onto the steps,' and onto the street. My friends were there, my teammates. Before I could turn or say another word, the ball had disappeared and the apple had gone. Hey, we have time for one more inning. What was the score? Who was on base? The game resumed and I started on my lonely walk home. There was never another word said about that home run. No register at Cooperstown. No mark in the Baltimore Sun. It was as if it had never happened. And then, years later, in a small restaurant in Baltimore, I saw a lady whose face looked familiar. Could it really be Joanne Nottingham? Was she sitting across the room from me? Was that the girl who had the perfect golden hair? Was that Joanne Nottingham really smiling in my direction? It was a look of no recognition but there seemed to be some promise of long-ago mysteries and adventure there. I wondered, did she remember? Making it up as I go along, I remember the story session. The story sessions we used to have in about the 10th grade. On those Friday afternoons, we were all invited to perform. We called it story session, but really it was an opportunity for Rosalie Woods to sing, usually such, such enchanting melodies as Alice's Blue Gown. And Michael Himmelfarb could recite, and we sat through week after week recitations from Longfellow. Occasionally we were treated to Bobby Goodman's stirring renditions of Boots, 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 or Philip Mock, a brilliant actor of 14, reciting Ganga Dean. When my turn came, I decided to tell a story. As I stood before the class, no line of verse came to mind. I was tone deaf. My adventures from the past summer offered very little promise of adventure. It Seemed to me the only thing that I could do was tell a great and lusty tale. The themes of a hundred movies welled into my memory. I recalled tales from countless summers counselors spellbinding us with adventure and horror. And I began for the first time at story hour my first rendition of a tale. One dark and stormy night, I began. Was that the teacher even now looking in my direction, responding and wincing at a cliche? My classmates didn't seem to notice. They moved forwards on their chairs. I could almost hear Chins rustle. Rosalie Wood herself, her jaw fallen, looked with great wide eyes' anticipation. One dark and stormy night at the old graveyard I began. A strange and mysterious thing was about to happen. The tombstones, white and shiny, reflecting the moonlight, began to stir, and from the very bowels of the earth A monster was born. We call him a vampire. When first he emerged into the light of night, he was a dark and hooded creature with bloodless lips. I screeched bloodless. There was not a sound in the room. The teacher herself looking somewhat suspicious was at least attentive. Huge white fangy tusk. There was a touch. Fangy tusk grew from the sides of his mouth. He looked hungry. wan, prepared for murder. Into the night moved the vampire. My adventure had begun. All eyes were on me. I created my vampire monster. Now what to do with him? An inspiration. As you all know, I live on Reservoir Street. You're not going to believe this, but it's a matter of public record. Imagine my shock and surprise that night when rising from my bed I heard a tapping on my window and then slowly and mysteriously the window rose and the vampire entered my room, his peg leg scratching across the floorboard. Rosalie Wood. Overwhelm, overwhelmed with terror and fear for me, was even then clawing at her desk. Did I hear her faintly saying no, no, no? But there was no stopping the mad monster of a storyteller that had been born in that classroom. Scratching across the floorboard, the vampire came to my bed. Oh, I'm not going to tell you, my fellow students, that I wasn't scared. A little modesty adds a note of reality to such tales. Yes, as his head cocked back and those fangy tusks gleaming in the moonlight, pierced and ready, ready to go right at my neck. What was I to do? I got no answer from them. Heads nodded, deep sighs. The teacher herself prepared to run to the principal's office to gain relief. And then I remembered there was only one force in the world which the vampires feared. Faith. Religion could drive them away. A demonstration of religious faith. That was the only thing that could save me. But it was not for myself alone that I was so moved. I thought of my beloved brother Benson in the other room. My parents so near and dear to me. I had to save them too from this dreaded monster. But what to do where to find some sign of faith in the middle of the night on my bunk in Baltimore. There was no chance to reach for my sitter, the Hebrew prayer book from which my bar mitzvah lessons had been learned. That was already put away on my bookcase. No hope to reach my tallis or tefillin. They were secured in a drawer. All these symbols of faith were beyond my grasp as the vampire's head cocked back. And Rosalie Wood covered her eyes. The teacher herself turned towards the window. In the first row, Bobby Goodman nodded his head from side to side, caught between disbelief and anger and fear. The empire was ready to strike, when suddenly, from my distant past, from a knowledge of history, I drew upon a symbol not quite as ancient as our own, but one employed with equally good faith. I made the sign of the cross and the vampire turned from my bed and disappeared into the night. I didn't make the honor roll that semester. I did not too well in Latin. Intermediate algebra all but eluded me. But that afternoon in the yard, I received my first reward. Bobby Goodman said, "Hey, That story, the one about the vampire, you just made that up, right? Rosalie Wood wanted to know. That was something you read, wasn't it? Even the teacher said, such an imagination. You shouldn't read such awful tales. Why don't you read good books like Tom Swift? I had my reward as I modestly walked through the schoolyard and corridors never quite understood by my classmates, as mysterious as a writer would wish to be. And then, and then that summer, I invented the Offutt napkin trick. That story belongs to Theodore Sterling, a counselor who was at the same time minister and apostle. It was Sam Theodore, Sam Sterling's theory, that all inequities in the world would be satisfied if the campers in his charge would clean up their plates. I can hear his voice now. Each and every one of you must eat every vegetable placed upon your plate. Remember the starving multitudes of India. Remember the dying in China. The underfed and impoverished of Africa. And so it was in their honor to establish economic harmony, that we were required to eat everything on our plate. Low one Friday afternoon, the very afternoon that a visiting team was waiting for us on the home field, the major climax of the Sterling, Sterling Clean Plate Club came to a head. Fish, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts. We chopped and churned the white smelly fish, destroyed the cauliflower with cuts and braces. But the Brussels sprouts, what are you going to do with those Brussels sprouts in honor of India, China, Africa? On to my plate, from the plate into the napkin, Brussels sprout after Brussels sprout, disappearing. A pocket full of Brussels sprouts. That would be the only way out. You know that deep left hand pocket on my baseball knickers? That's where they went. I ripped up the napkin. The sprouts were in the pocket. And then with... St- Sterling finally acknowledging that we were free, we moved to the ball field for an afternoon's recreation with a pocket full of Brussels sprouts. On the field, the visiting team went down in order. We came to bat. I was the first man up, and I walked. A miracle. A bunt went down on the second pitch, and I streaked from first base and hit second an overthrow! I moved to third on the signal to slide and slid into third base. The Adirondack air was shattered by the smell of Brussels sprouts, and there was green all over third base. Oh, Voltaire, we don't always write about what we know best. Sometimes, sometimes we just make it up as we go along.